1: here in Columbia and they're in Moulton, Alabama. I wanted to have Kyle and and Shelby on because they're sort of the classic homeschool slash reconstructionist couple. They're founders of Visionarian Press. They both studied applying scriptures to a number of societal issues for several years. Kyle has written in the past for the Wallace Group. He's also the curator of the David H. Chilton Center for Reformed Theology, and is undergoing a pastoral internship and studying for his MDiv at New Geneva Leadership Academy in Appomattox, Virginia, with our good friend Paul Michael Raymond. Shelby, in addition to caring for their daughter Elizabeth, who is soon to be one, is in the long process of studying and writing on handling child abuse and sexual abuse from a biblical viewpoint. And, uh, so we're going to talk to them about a little bit about their publishing business, about education, uh, the important roles of education and homeschooling in the kingdom. And of course, their new company and all the other things they're doing. So welcome, you guys. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be here today. Why don't you tell, uh, uh, our listeners your maturation, uh, how you matriculated from being young starstruck teenagers in love to, Adults fully engaged in the battle to extend the kingdom of Jesus Christ to every area of life from Moulton, Alabama. How did you find each other, and how did you guys? Uh, <laughs> and, and how did how did how did you determine that you were got you guys were headed the same place? Huh. <laughs> this is fun story. <laughs>
2: hilarious story. So, okay, you may have to help me out here, shall we? Well, we met. Well, whatever. Yeah, we
3: met online actually. Our, we had mutual friends and we met in theological conversations. Um, I don't think either one of us were looking for ourselves online. No, but, but, uh, we had mutual friends, like she
2: said, on uh, Google Plus, which is kind of a Google version of Facebook. And uh, we had just been I had been floating around and she had been floating around. We didn't know about each other. And then uh, a mutual friend of ours made a comment um, about something, and I commented and then she commented. Well, <laughs> by that point, I had already checked out her profile, and I thought, hey, this girl's cute. It'd be fun to get to talk to her. <laughs> and uh so then lo and behold, she began to talk to me. And so just being civil, you know, I responded to her comment, and uh we started to talk about, theology and things like that
3: and actually what one of the first things that i think really um, made me pay attention to him separate from anyone else is uh, we started talking about institutes of biblical Law*, and i asked him if he had ever read it and he said that it changed his life and that had already been that was already going to be something that I required any future suitor to do was to read that book before we moved forward. So, um, whenever I saw that he actually had read it and he said it changed his life, uh, that definitely put him
1: on my radar. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you you have you have really uh, you, you've shattered a paradigm and you've you've and you've reached an important milestone in the annals of. Online dating history. Number
0: one,
1: Christian homeschooling Reconstructionist families are going to be absolutely amazed that you actually met online and didn't meet at a homeschool conference. That's what we thought. And and the other thing is, I don't know. Shelby may be the first woman in history who's ever required a future her her future husband. <laughs> that, that that had have you read Russian Institutes of Biblical Law as a prerequisite for a suitor. That's got to be some sort of a a first. And I'd already read it a couple of years before and to this day she
2: still never finished it.
3: Okay. I'm really, really close though. <laughs> like halfway.
2: Uh, but um so we began to um you know, exchange um You know, comments back and forth, talking about different things, and we found out that we were on a very similar wavelength. We both thought about the kingdom. We both thought about books. We both thought about publishing. We both thought about, you know, a lot of things, you know, smaller than that. (laughs) Um, You know, we both loved music. We both loved, you know, on and on and on, and uh, we both uh, shared, basically, a common ticker, a common vision, and We found that out as, you know, the months went by in August 2012. So over the next few months, we uh, began to get closer and closer together. Um, I had been doing work for the Calthetan Foundation at that point, and I pulled her on several projects, and the projects were definitely enhanced by her input. Um, She began to do some different illustration she began to do illustration work, and some indexing help and just some general assistance with the work I was doing and um this is the one of the funny things is that due to a uh, long train of providences, we did not actually meet in person until like two years after we met online. was that your
1: wedding rehearsal
2: <laughs> <You're perfectly> <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Um but, he, <laughs> yeah, but um,
3: he also, he met my family before he met me. He met my grandfather and my uncle. Yeah, I think, out. Yeah. the pe- the men who were, you know, the closest thing that I had to family protectors in my life.
2: Yeah, so, um, so in uh, 2014, I think it was, I flew out to Houston for the Law and Liberty tour that they had in Houston with Martin Silberetti and Mark Rush and Oh, I forget who all was speaking there, but um, I flew out there and I met her family. And by this point, she had actually moved to Alabama, so she was not there. Uh, but I met her family and I befriended uh, Shelby Luke, Gramps, and uh, spent some time with them out on their uh, property, Covenant Acres, out in uh, Sweeney. And um, we we developed a very a good strong bond during that weekend. And uh, during that weekend, I actually obtained permission from her, uh, uh, you know, uh, Gramps and her uncle and their wives uh, to marry Shelby. And so I I, uh, I got on the call. Had, had, uh, had you asked Shelby? No. Well, I hadn't asked her at that point, but at that point we had grown so close that um,
3: he, he knew what that I was it, was,
2: it was – I knew what she was going to say, and we were kind of already speaking in terms of marriage anyway. It was sort of like there wasn't really a period where we were, you know, not quote-unquote courting, and then we were courting. It was very fluid. It was very organic.
1: You've been working – so you've been basically corroborating with one another uh, almost from the inception of your – almost from your meeting.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we actually started getting close, I think, from working together. Yeah. Oh yeah,
2: that was definitely it. Working together on common projects that had meaning. Uh, but yeah, we started getting close within seriously a week of finding each other on time.
3: Getting close within and um, having really substantial conversations and working together. And my mom was already saying Oh, my goodness, you found the one, and don't let him go. And I'm like, Mom, you told me I'm not allowed to marry anybody I meet online. And she goes, I changed my mind. You have to marry him. Um,
2: So then I guess you could say we were officially engaged in September of 2014, and then we got married in January of 2015. So that was pretty quick, but hey. um,
3: We were ready to get busy on all this stuff that we do now.
1: Yeah. Tell us specifically, um, bo- both of you, you have, you have different roles in your corroborative efforts. Um, Shelby, I, you've been, I guess you've classified yourself as an indexer. I mean, is that, is that an occupation?
3: It actually is. There are professional indexers and indexing networks and um, societies and all of that. But an indexer is someone who prepares the back-of-the-book index. When you turn to the back of the book and you are looking for a specific piece of information and you go through that alphabetical list to find what information you're looking for and it tells you what page number to go to, that, that's an back-of-the-book index. And it takes some, somebody to create that. A computer can't do that because it takes the human mind. So um, you know, software can create concordances, but an indexer is someone who has to recognize that if, you know, for instance, Rushdoony is talking about a victorious eschatology, and elsewhere he uses the term postmillennialism, um, those are both the same thing, and they need to be brought together for the under the head of postmillennialism or something. Um, it, it takes you know all of the different the variety synonyms and the, the English language figures out what's really important, what's something that the reader is actually trying to find, not just a passing mention, and uh, organizes it in a way that makes it very easy for the reader to find the information thereafter.
1: Does that mean that you, when you read a book, you
0: really read it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I,
3: I, I've um, mainly indexed Rush Dooney, and then I've done some for Andrea Schwartz. And, um, but I, I tell people that I get to study Rush all day long and get paid for it, which is wonderful. <laughs> it's incredible.
1: Now you say you're getting paid for it. You're, you also are, are employed, uh, as a, I, I presume as an outside contractor for Calcedon. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're outside contractors
2: <clears throat> for and Calcedon and a couple other
1: folks. Mm-hmm. And And what else do you do, Shelby?
3: Um, I write backliner materials. So I will do that because I like writing copy. You know, I catch errors sometimes, make sure that file catches them. And then also, right now I'm training other people to index so that they can replace me at some point. Uh, So there are more reconstructionist indexers out there because I'm the only one that I know about.
1: Uh, Kyle, give us a little bit of background as to what your specific skill set, what your role, and what you do in uh, for both for Calcedon and uh, for others. Yeah,
2: um, well, um, go back a bit. My mother uh, grew up reading. Um, you know, she she and her father would go to the library and part out armfuls of books every few weeks. And uh, so she grew up reading, she loved reading, and she taught us to love reading in books. And uh, she's, over the years, collected probably between five and 10,000 books in her home. Um, a lot of them um, tend to be on the younger end of the spectrum simply because, you know, I've got nine siblings and they're all younger than me. Um, but anyway, we all grew up reading and loving books, loving reading, loving everything having to do with it. So when I was... Um, Boy, I don't know. I don't know. Ten or eleven, I would tinker around on our old PC, um, you know, with fonts and sizes and colors, all kinds of stuff like that. And as I grew older, I began to, you know, be a bit more professional in what I did, a bit more serious. I would find, you know, old public domain works by G. A. Henty, and I would format them on the computer, and uh, just, you know, no real purpose, just because I enjoyed it. Just and, typical uh, kid, just kid, typical oh, yeah. kid stuff, right? Yeah, yep. Just <laughs> my hobby, and uh so back, so you know, I graduated high school a few years ago, and at that point, I uh, was like, well, hmm, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And uh I thought, well, you know, uh, you know, I might could make a living out of doing this formatting and typesetting stuff.
3: So,
2: um, you know, I I called around. And, uh, to some different publishers, and, uh, one of them happened to be Mark Rustini, and, uh, he, uh, I talked to him, and I said, Mr. Rustini, uh, my name is Kyle Shepard, uh, I am, uh, you know, here's who I am, here's what I do, here's, you know, how your father's works It impacted my thinking, and I'd like to be able to, you know, help you guys out with some typesetting. Is there any, do you happen to have a volunteer project I could work on? And, uh, he, uh, said so he'd get back to me, and then two days later, Andrea called me and, uh, had a project I could work on as a volunteer, and the rest is, I guess, they think, history, and I moved from, you know, project to project to project over the years, and I've done quite a bit of stuff, but, um, I have always enjoyed typesetting and book cover design, and, uh, I have since picked up a, at least one other client. I've done, actually, I've done a little bit of work for Roger Oliver in Puebla a few years ago. And uh, that's how I got to know him. But um, so that is, that, I guess you could say that's my history as far as the book design goes, and book design, typesetting stuff like that goes.
1: How did either one of you discover Rush, I
3: had a close friend, I went to homeschool co-op classes my mom had put me in and um, when I was about 13 um, I was actually in the throes of rebellion Um, and I was there were were a lot of really bad kids in my homeschool co-op class. It was mainly fundamentalist independent Baptist and I don't know why the parent—I don't know if the parents weren't paying attention or something—but the the children were really awful there, and my mom didn't know it because I didn't tell her. And so I was in the middle of this rebellion when, um, actually, a young lady walked in to our homeschool class—a new—a new classmate. And I loved her and hated her all at the same time because I could tell she was a Christian, and um, I claimed to be a Christian for sure. My mom, I don't think knew how bad my rebellion was, um, but uh, the Lord used her greatly in my life and convicted me with her with her uh, example of chasing the Lord and purity and um, just her faithfulness to the Lord's standards, and so her name was Brittany. And so I began. I, well, the Lord, I think, used that to draw me to Himself and to for me to turn my back on the world forever after that. And I uh, began pursuing a friendship with her because she was she was the most mature young person I knew. And um, she discipled me a lot. She's about a year older than me, but she was so much more mature than I was at the time. And she discipled me a lot. And when she got into a courtship with Ben Nelson, who's Jim Nelson's son, she told me about it and uh, kept me informed in that. And that made us even closer. And then one year we went to visit Nelson's together. I rode with them the year that she got engaged to Ben, and that's when I met Jim Nelson, the pa- or, um, who is now my pastor. Um, but at the time, um, he was just my friend's fiancé's father, you know. And um, he started asking me a lot of questions. Well, I was asking him a lot of questions. I love talking about theology, but I was struggling a lot with Calvinism at the time because as a... I, I was raised as a Calvinist, but we were I we were super dispensationalist whenever I was younger, and um, the Calvinism that we had was had a cooling effect rather than you know heating effect on our faith. So it wasn't you know so there was a lot of pietism in our lives, but as far as outreach went. We were Calvinists, so God had that all taken care of. And if we had, since we were such dispensationalists, any social action was wrong. It was sinful. So as a young person who was, you know, on the cusp of adulthood, I, I was really, really chafing under this quietistic Calvinism that I was raised. In. And I was starting to hear things like, you know, well, well, if you have children, if you bring children into this awful world, I started hearing phrases like that in my circles, and I and I didn't like that at all. I was thinking, what, how, I need a faith. I I know that the Lord created me for some reason, and I need a faith that will show me. I need to know what the, what God wants me to do with my life, and I need a faith that is broad enough to include my every single day and include what I'm supposed to do with my children and what I'm supposed to do with my children out in this awful world. Um, and I had friends who were Arminians, and they, at least, they had the passion to reach people for Christ because... Of their their belief system, they believed that God needed them to reach people for Christ. And so while that was bad theology, it made them very active and they were evangelizing. And so I was really struggling with my Calvinism at the time. And I was really wanting to become an Arminian for no other reason but to have something to do (laughs) with my life that would be meaningful to the Lord. Um, If I could believe that God needed me to reach out and save people, then that gave my life meaning. Um, so whenever I met Jim Nelson, um, we started talking, and our, our conversations began at Calvinism, and we discussed it, and as I was talking to him, even though he was using a lot of the same arguments that my, grand, my grandfather had been, it was it, – he – had something different, a whole different dynamic added to it. And he began talking, because the one thing that he said, I, I remember saying, the problem with Calvinists is they don't do anything to change the world. And he said, oh, is that so? And he went and got me a book called Calvinism and History and handed it to me. And it was all about how John Calvin,
0: you
3: know, by God's grace, his good theology changed the world. And um, And it was Uh, for the first time I heard things like, you know, the United States of America would not be here without Calvinist theology and things like that. And and I was reading about uh, Geneva and how it was a haven for women and children. And I was reading about how Calvinists had a, because of the sovereignty of God, they had a program for social action. And it was, a complete paradigm shift for me. Um, and so at that point, it, I, I think Pastor Jim started seeing that I really, I was really hungry for the things that he was talking about. And so he stayed up late and would talk to me the whole time that I was there and um, sent me home with a bunch of books <laughs> and included in that was the Primer by Andrew Stanley which I studied because I had already been studying Charles Larkin and uh, was very, very steeped in dispensationalism. And so this book, he, gave, he he went, I think, at that angle because I was already so interested in eschatology. He gave me a book that um, broke down. There was a chapter called The Defect of Dispensationalism and laid it all out there. And that that chapter, that one chapter, completely changed course of my life. And so then I brought it home to my grandfather (laughs) and we uh, began discussing it and I began asking him a lot of questions that he didn't have answers to. And it was a difficult conversation because he was a very committed dispensationalist. But a few weeks later he loaded up the truck and brought me with him and we went to Alabama and he decided that he needed to talk to Pastor Jim Nelson. And he's a Reconstructionist today. And <clears throat> in um, Pastor Jim's correspondence with us and giving us books, of course, he gave us a lot of Rush Genie books. He gave first, the first book that I read that was Reconstructionist was, besides that Andrew Sandlin book, uh, but the first Hardy book that I read was um, The Dominion Covenant by um, Gary North, yeah. And of course, he references Rush Genie all throughout there. And it was very, uh, it was so different, so different than anything that I had ever read before. And I just became so hungry for for any Reconstruction book I could get my hands on. And we had the institute of biblical wall, and Pastor Jim had said that that was one that I really needed to read. Um, so I started in on that, and and it put all the pieces together for me.
1: Well. Yeah, two things that come to my mind. Number one, I, I I really love your grandpa, but I don't think I would have even liked him as a dispensationalist. I can imagine <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine Gramps as a dispensationalist. He would have been a real coot, uh, as we say. But the other thing that's really interesting is uh how God's you know God's sovereignty is so multi dimensional and overlapping. It's like completely interwoven, so Brittany's marriage to Ben in the sovereignty of God was also God's methodology to bring you to Ben's dad, mm-hmm. which brought you into your present world view, it's, it's really an amazing story, I, I yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And I didn't understand why we're ho- why we were homeschooling and doing all of these things that good fundamentalist Baptists do without you know a reason for it. It was like it didn't make sense to it. didn't make sense. The thing the worlds heart merging together, and it was incredible. Whenever I saw that, you know, the faith really does apply to every area of life. And when I learned that Rush Junior was the father of homeschooling, that just that blew my mind. <laughs> like, yeah, just uh, back in the 60s,
2: mm-hmm. in the character of American education. Um, well, my my story is not here as an interesting as hers. Um, we grew up not really radical anything. Um we we were not radical dispensationalists. We were radically premillennial. Um truth be told, I don't really know what we were because I really didn't give too much about any of that at the time. Um I just know that growing up we were in a just a general baptistic uh probably somewhat dispensational, probably somewhat premillennial setting. That's about all I really know. Um because at that time, I viewed Christianity as, um, I I viewed it kind of as the only thing I really knew to view it as, which was just kind of a keychain thing. I'm not really sure where I got that. Um, I know my parents didn't teach that to me, but I just I saw it. I didn't really see it as a thriving life system. I just was like, well, yeah, of course, you know, I'm a Christian. What else would I be? Um, <clears throat> then in about 2000. 2000-ish or so, give or take a couple years, uh, my dad um started hearing about this guy named John Piper. And he started hearing about this um, from what I understand of what happened, you know, 16 years ago. He started hearing about John Piper. He started hearing about these doctrines of grace and Calvinism and things like that. He began to listen to more of Piper and, and more of the Reformed faith. And, uh, Right around that same time, my, uh, my family, uh, stumbled onto Vision Forum, which for all their, uh, interesting adventures over the years has, uh, t- I'm grateful to God for the tremendous influence on my life because it was Vision Forum that ultimately the Lord used to bring me to, uh, rescue in And, you know, the, that, they were the gateway drug for the comprehensive worldview, um, it was uh the, the jeff botkin family actually in uh i think it was 2008 they held a little teeny conference just over the georgia border um called i i actually forget what it was called but it was just them they had the calcedon booth they had their own booth and uh just a bunch of families came and listened to them talk on different subjects well my dad and i came and my sister and during the uh little micro conference. Uh we stopped by the Calcedon booth, which uh Martin Salbretti actually was Manning at the time. And we bought a handful of books. We got Small Liberty, Tithing and Dominion, um The Institutes Volume One, I got Genesis, Deuteronomy, and uh I feel like I got you know something else. But that that was it. We we came home from the conference and I I, I I read through uh I think it was Law and Liberty. And oddly enough, I actually wasn't, it didn't actually do that much for me. Um, I thought it was a great book and all, but it didn't shatter my non-existent oral view. And then I started on the Institute's of Biblical Law. And I got, I didn't even get through the introduction before I realized I needed to get my own copy because I was fixing to mark up my dad's private property like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and uh, So I got my own copy. That was the first theological book I had ever read that made any lasting impact on me. Now, I had read a few other ones up to that point by just some other more mainstream reform folks, but this was bomb. This was, this was, I guess, kind of my combination of her postmillennial primer and the dominion covenant this was that for me i read it and i thought well of course god's word applies to every area of life well of course he's going to have the victory i mean what else would there be i didn't even know any what i was talking about at the time i just knew that hey this made a whole lot of sense um and so i've read the institutes of biblical law and i moved on from you know book to book to book to book um, over the years, uh, you know, listening to Pastor Warcraft, listening to Bojar, uh tracking with some different things that Gary North had written and reading some different books by, you know, Puritans and other folks outside the normal so called reconstructionist pale. And uh <clears throat> over the years the Lord has uh really worked in my mind and in my heart to give me um, so many puzzle pieces and put them together for me. And then I, I just began to understand. As I began to understand that increased the fire in me and I realized, wow, um, you know, God's kingdom encompasses everything. He will reign, you know. He there there is no question in my mind that he blesses righteousness and curses unrighteousness. Uh and so the outcome is There's no question about that. I mean, aside from the fact that he's on the throne, I mean, that's, you know, neither here nor there. He's just king. But um, (laughs) And it began to trickle through, and I began to see, you know, opportunities for advancing the gospel in a comprehensive way in local, you know, local missions, in publishing, in uh, reaching out to your community, in you name it. Now, I'm not good at all of them, um, but... The Lord has been very gracious to uh, continue reforming my understanding and fleshing it out. And uh, I'm very thankful now to be at Jim Nelson's church and uh, uh, 10 minutes from Tim Yarborough. And uh, they have done so much to refine and form my thinking and my personal discipline and everything. It's just, the Lord's been very, 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 very kind to us, much more kind to me than I really deserve. (laughs) No,
1: the the area where you live, at Molten, you have a unique, uh, there's an unique unique synergy and a unique energy that's going on there. There are a few places in the United States that you really sense that that God has a unique uh, assortment of individuals, uh, working and interacting and playing together and living in close proximity. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I would say, I would say, uh, you're involved with two of them at least. One is, uh, New Geneva at Appomattox and the other is Moulton, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it, um why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, – it sounds to me you're both – yeah, you're destined to be publishers. We want to talk about your new publishing venture, your new uh, your new company. But if you would take a, a minute, Kyle, to sort of sell our listeners on New Geneva, what you've gleaned from your association uh, with that uh, – uh, organization and establishment Paul Michael Raymond is it is, is new Geneva pretty much uh his baby i mean is, is is it is does it exist pretty much because of his herculean efforts or were there other people involved in starting it um yeah uh, my
2: understanding is
1: that it is his
2: baby it's his efforts it's 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 there because of his work over the years to establish it and put it together and pull all the resources together, et cetera. Um, New Geneva is a tremendous resource. Uh It is like nothing else I've ever seen. Um, not that I've seen a whole lot, but my point is, you know, um, the he, I'm not sure where to start because it's
1: it's so uh, just so good. Well tell, tell it's very- I've had I've had Paul Michael Raymond on the war room, uh, but we haven't you know, I, I would like just from a from and, and Don Schonsenbach who uh, uh who went through the uh, program there. Yep. Uh but why don't you just give us your what you tell us what you're doing and what you're and just your your personal take on it. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm in the long haul um, to earn
2: my Master's of Divinity. Um, I really, I I have wanted to give myself a more structured education in these things for a while now. And uh, Dr. Paul has fit that bill perfectly. He is very flexible, and he's worked with me to, okay, you've read this. Okay, well, we're not going to sign this to you. We'll give you another similar book um he's very flexible he's worked with me to put the course together he has um his the first course is uh well the first course that i'm doing is uh, basically a primer to advancing the kingdom and i thought when i first started i thought well okay you know i work for rush juni i've read a lot of rush juni i mean i don't really need this but i'll just do it so that you know i i can you know do it that's i have to anyway well, uh, I didn't get one lesson in before I realized, boy, that was stupid. This – I had learned so much already just from one lesson um, in the beginning, first, elementary uh, course, you know, class that, that, that he had. And um, it's been amazing to hear – the the textbook that I'm going through right now is Schoenzenbach's book and a book by Ed Payne. And I'm listening to the lectures put together by Dr. Paul. And it's it's very incredible. It's really great because you, you read the books, but then you hear Dr. Paul, so you hear the same material two or three different times, but it's from a different perspective. And they all pull out different emphases. And the fact that Dr. Paul is around and you know I can call him with questions and he'll answer them is invaluable.
1: Um,
2: like I said, it's do you have do
1: you have any do you have any interaction with other students, other other people in the program?
2: I, I don't I happen to know um, of one other person who's taking it and I also happen to know that Don Sonsenbach went through it but other than that I have no interaction with any of the other students probably mostly because there just isn't any interaction inherent I mean if I wanted to find out
1: I could um, It's a complete its a, it's a it's a distance program yeah. degree program that is that pretty much dr. Paul Taylor's I mean, Dr. Uh, uh, Raymond Taylor's specifically to the individual. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So another person working on an MDIF who did not have your depth of background in Russian would very likely be going about it differently. Is that that safe to say? Um,
2: Possibly slightly.
1: Um, It's more based on what you think your
2: calling is, I think, rather than what have you read before. Um, but yes, he does tailor it to some extent, and that's it's it's. I mean, he really cares for his students, and that's, that's very encouraging for me.
1: It's tell me, I, tell us, for a person who now you have an undergraduate degree already, I don't have anything. But you're going to go for a master's, so
2: yep. Well, I got to
1: work my way through the BA, but yeah. What what uh, what sort of a trajectory? What sort of a time frame? Uh, and what sort of a cost for the, uh, interested listener, uh, could they anticipate? Time frame is
2: super hard for me to put a finger on because that's one thing about the college is that it's completely flexible. It's totally up to you as far as speed. So what may take one person, you know, two to three weeks to get through one course, May take somebody else three or four months simply because of the other things they've got going in their life. I know that I'm yeah. going to be on the
1: lower end for sure. Are there are there still are there still state mandated requirements as far as credit hours? Yes. Yes. And, and you so, know roughly you r- you know roughly how many credit hours are involved in the program? Um, not off
2: the top of my head, but you can get all that info on their website US. And. Uh,
1: would you say it's pretty affordable
2: yeah i would i would say that um i would say that it's affordable uh you know you got to obviously be disciplined with your finances but um i would say that it's it's for the price that it is and the flexibility that it offers and the hands-on mentorship that Dr. Paul gives and this it's the ability to go at your own pace there's nothing like it.
1: How, often, how How frequently do you actually meet with uh, Paul? Uh, um, in person, um, yeah. I don't. You don't? Uh,
2: no, I don't in person meet with him
1: ever, I mean, it's, unless I go up there. It's um, all it's, it's all distance. It's and all so distance. It, it doesn't require travel for the participant. That's correct. Okay. Well, so uh, our listeners should go to newgeneva.us if you're interested in it. I visited there, him and Jane and Paul and and Michael Raymond and his wife. And uh, it's a unique facility, right, in old downtown Appomattox, Virginia, not far from the Surrender site. We call Moulton
3: on Geneva because and there might be a a better um, name for it, but... Um, we call it our Geneva because we have come here. For me it's been an incredible healing experience and um, for both of us the discipleship our discipleship is happening here. Um, and then that'll happen throughout the rest of our lives of course. But um, we are preparing for everything that the Lord has for us to do in our lives right now and we know that and so we're working to to get as much hardcore discipleship as we can right now and we're in a great place to do it but eventually yeah uh, eventually
2: um, the Lord's put a burden on our hearts for the last couple years well me longer than her obviously but um, we'd like to move back down to near where my parents live, which is uh, a couple hours south of here, which is just kind of a six-county Alabama Alabama kind of thing, and bring the comprehensive gospel to, you know, Redneck, Alabama, basically. Bring the comprehensive gospel to a county of, you know, 23,000 people. It's not real well off economically at all. People are leaving. People are dying. There's, you know, there's drugs. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but we we're, we're thinking, I, I, the Lord has given me a burden for that county for several years now. Um, but it appears that right now he has us up here in Walton mm-hmm. to build our business and to grow and get our feet and our discipleship. Yep. You know, like Paul
1: went and he had his time, his three years. We don't have much time left, so we want to talk about your about your new business, and that's, go ahead and pronounce it, pardon me, Visionarian? Yep, Visionarian Press. Tell us about Visionarian Press and then tell the world, you know, since we have this, this soapbox to the world, uh, why don't you tell us about your new business and, in particular, your the first uh, venture of your new business. Visionarian Press um, was actually
2: something that I had dreamed up about Five or six years ago, before I met Shelby, and um, it, the goal of it was to be a, a small publishing house that um, you know published good, worthwhile stuff. Um, it and, and as I as I continued to mature, it began. It became in my mind a publishing house that I wanted to start someday that would be primarily of children's books that would take a lot of the Reformed and so-called Reconstructionist truths and teach them through, you know, the the bedtime story kind of books or real easy first, you know, three-chapter kind of books, very different degrees of children's books, Um, you know, big-picture books or, you know, 60-page stories. But I wanted to do that. Um, That was actually... One of the main things that got Shelby involved is because she had a similar vision. <clears throat> but we never were able to do anything with that because of time and resources. And I'm not a writer and I'm not an illustrator and she is a writer, but you know, we had other things that we were doing, uh, like earning an income. Mm-hmm. And uh, as time went on, the vision continued to uh progress and change and grow and shape. And we realized that there was a greater need for not just children's books but educational materials on the whole. So increasingly clear to me uh, that we were going to be starting a publishing company, but just so much in the near future. And uh, back in November, uh, Shelby and I sat down and we were discussing it. we were discussing the connections that we have. Um, the both in terms of content. You know, we know a lot of people that, that would do this in terms of content. And then, you know, skill. We know illustrators. We know writers. We know editors and proofreaders and publishers and people that we could get advice from, on and on and on. And we realized, you know, the Lord may just be having us doing this in just a few months here. So we continue to pray about it. We continue to get counsel from uh, Tim Narborough we continue to do our, do the math and do diligence and gather data and interview people and really actually get concrete information that to make that we could make a decision off of instead of, oh boy, this would be fun. Um, and then uh, in November and December we began the process of incorporating, and we have been setting up our payment process and uh, we've been setting up some different things in the last month or so. But Visionary Press is a publishing house, and our long-term goal is to take a lot of the Reformed and Reconstructionist material, and even some stuff that's put out by non-Reformed, non-Reconstructionist people, but translate it into children's books, teach these principles, uh, homeschool curriculum, online e-courses that you know, Johnny can log on and do his course and watch his lecture and then do his homework and get off the computer anywhere in the world. Um, prison uh prison ministry material, study guides, local community outreach material. Uh we wanna ultimately we want to take a lot of material, some of the more important works and translate them into more basic English. Uh, for, you know, that particular demographic of readers. So our goal is to really advance education in terms of practicality. Let's put feet to this, okay? It's great that you know whatever, but how does that practically apply in the real world? What are you going to do with it? So that's a very long-term vision for Visionarian. Uh but our motto is First the blade, taken from our Lord's um, passage of first the blade and, and then the ear and then the uh, full harvest <clears throat> from mark four. And that's very much how we're starting out right now. Uh, we are our first book um, which by the time this podcast is released, this our first book should be on the market, but our first book is um, AW Pink's The Sovereignty of God Now this book has been out for, you know, 80 years or whatever. It's a Christian classic. It's well known. It's loved. It's not often listened to. But it has but what we are doing is we are taking the unabridged version. We are professionally typesetting it, giving it a new professional cover. We are having it hardback, hardback down Smythe stone binding to last for years and years. We are giving it a scripture index. We are giving it just a general a, a topical index, and we have checked every single quotation of scripture to make sure that um, you know that, that it, it's quoted accurately. Um, we have uh, put this together, and the more I think about it the more I realize that this is actually a really unique product. Um, well, so and,
1: and, and tell our listeners something else that I just found out the other day from you in, in reference to the fact that it's unabridged. Yeah, I was just going to say that.
2: the uh, Back in the 60s, there was one particular publisher who took the book and made some editorial decisions regarding it <coughs> um, because um, they, they were making some changes that they believe reflected um, – Pink's later understanding that he came to toward the end of his life. Well, that resulted in this publisher removing all four appendixes and a good, a good portion of the main text and, and changing, editing sentences and paragraphs here and there throughout
1: the remainder of the book. This would be like the extended director's cut. If, if a person has a readily available copy of, of Sovereignty of God, how much more will this will this be than, than what they currently have, do you estimate?
2: But it has not been produced in this form. Hardback, to the best of my knowledge, and fairly exhaustive research, it's not been produced to the best of my knowledge in hardback, new typesetting, fresh indexes, this quality, um at least in decades. Generally, if you're going to go buy a copy online, you're going to get paperback. Um, it may or may not be a bridge, depending on where you get it from. Um, but it's going to be a scan of uh, the text from the 60s or a scan of the text from the 30s. And uh, it's just going to be paperback. It's, it's just, you know, kind of almost a disposable copy. Um, but the the work that we're doing is to create this for people who are serious about understanding the sovereignty of God and who love quality and excellence. If you're looking for a cheap throwaway, you can get one really cheap on Amazon. But um Well I wouldn't call copies.
1: it a throw I wouldn't call it a throwaway but a giveaway.
2: Oh that's true. That's a good point. Um so as far as the average copy that a person may have uh, well, I know you know Mr. Tim has some of the just paperbacks. I know our pastor has an unabridged paperback, um, but it's just it you know it's going to be
1: just standard paperback. That's all you can get these days. Yeah. So to to, to get to the meat of the matter, <clears throat> this is a this is a production that needs to be in every pastor, elder, Christian family, homeschooling family's library. Uh, it needs to be in every Christian college, every seminary. You have youth on your side and, and energy if you study church history. Great things have more often been accomplished by the orthodoxy of the few than the, orth- than the orthodoxy of the many. When people ask me for a brief definition of Christian reconstruction, I say uh, they're doers, comprehensive doers global doers, and their multi-generational doers. What's so refreshing and and inspirational for me personally is that when I meet people like the Jonathan character, uh, uh, Robert Hoyle, so many others who have been weaned on Christian Reconstruction literature Faith for all of life, worldview that they have a certain way about them that differentiates themselves from just your garden variety everyday evangelical Christian, and the fact that there seems to be a an intensity and a passion and a, a, obviously a comprehensiveness about their their faith, but that they Reconstructionists—you can generally tell a reconstruction, a person who's been raised in a reconstructionist home, are would probably identify as one—is that they love talking about Christ and His kingdom, and more than talking about it, they have a burning desire to to do something about it, to extend Christ's kingdom, and and, and yet, in spite of the tools of interconnectivity that we have. We're still a disjointed and sometimes disorganized lot, but God is, like Levin, is working all things according to the counsel of his will, and, and that includes sometimes pain and suffering and tragedy. You know, the future is not Gary North. The future is Kyle and Shelby Shepherd. That's both humbling and invigorating. Yeah, it really is. We have a website for Visionarian Press.
2: Folks can go to visionarian.com, v-i-s-i-o-n-a-r-i-o-n.com. They will be able to purchase our fantastic edition of the Sovereignty of God, and uh, our stock is very small. Right? I mean, our, our you know generally the the things we have in the store it's a very small amount of things right now, but our goal is to grow and produce, like I said, courses and study guides. And, uh, Kimmy Arbro is actually writing study guides for The Sovereignty of God right now. And, uh, that should be out in the next couple months as well. And, uh, first the blade, you know, I think all too often we want first the jackpot, but unfortunately that's not how it works. And, uh, but the, the the benefit of it is that in the long run, we're made much stronger, and Christ is glorified. and uh, again, it's not about overnight success, right? It's not about getting something for nothing. It's about faith in action, faithful action, it's about obedience, and it's about the kingdom, and it's about Christ.
1: Amen. All right. well, Kyle, Shelby Shepherd, thank you for joining us and folks, thank all of you all for listening to us today here on The War Room.
0: Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by My Soul Among Lions.